This is They Create World, episode 22, The Galaxy Game. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create World. I'm Jeff, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Today, we are going to go over Galaxy Game, which is one of the first video games that was put out there for the general public, but never really saw itself much more than a couple of prototypes. That's right. It's interesting because it comes at the very dawn of what would become the video arcade game industry, and it happens in parallel with the more famous developments of Nolan Bushnell and Ted Dabney to create the game Computer Space that would ultimately spawn Atari. So even though it didn't go anywhere and the people that created it didn't even remain in the industry after building these first couple of prototypes, it still stands as a kind of important milestone in video game history. And it's an interesting process to look at because it shows a different path for video gaming that never quite took off in the arcade for reasons that we'll get into. All right. I know that fairly recently, and you said this in the last episode, that you've interviewed a person who managed to give you their business plan that I think one of the two founders completely forgot about. That's correct. As we kind of touched on, like you said, at the end of the last episode, I had the privilege recently of interviewing Hugh Tuck. Galaxy Game was created by two individuals. Bill Pitts was really the programmer of the two, and he did 90% of the actual work on what became Galaxy Game. His partner was Hugh Tuck. Hugh Tuck was a mechanical engineer, so he helped out some on designing a cabinet, designing controls, designing mechanisms, that kind of thing, and was also very important because it was through Hugh that they got most of the funding for the project. But because Hugh Tuck was not the primary mover of the project, as far as I know, nobody had interviewed him before. Bill Pitts has been interviewed before because people are interested in his experience. Hugh Tuck, not so much. So I was, I think, the first person to interview him. When he got my request, he went through his files to see what he had from back in the day, and he discovered this business plan, 37 pages, for a company called Mini Computer Applications, which was the original company that they had set up to try to get funding to produce the Galaxy game on a mass scale. This is the first time that this has ever come to light. Bill Pitts was the one that wrote it up, but Bill Pitts, in the intervening 40 years, had forgotten they ever did it. Hmm. And I know this because Hugh told me that, you know, he found this business plan and then he wanted to get Bill's permission before he shared it because it's their joint document. And so when he told Bill that he found this business plan, is it okay that I shared it? Bill told him that he'd forgotten that they'd even done a business plan. So even though Bill Pitts had been interviewed before, he had never told anyone about a business plan because he had literally forgotten that it ever existed. So as far as I know, I'm the first person to see this particular business plan in probably, you know, 40 years or so. Wow. Was there any particular revelation from the business plan that sort of shed light on how they planned the company out that wasn't really brought to light in previous interviews? There was a little bit. The major thing that was interesting about it is they really, at least at this stage, were trying to divorce themselves from the traditional coin-op industry. As we've talked about a lot before, the coin-op industry has existed since the 1930s in its modern form with the rise of pinball. It goes back further than that. 
but really we can say the 1930s. And this was, as we discussed in the crash episode, by the early 70s, this was very much a bar, tavern, restaurant business. Yes, you had arcades in a few inner city locations and in a few touristy locations, like on boardwalks in New York and New Jersey, that kind of thing. And in the West, you might have had a few other kind of fun spot locations, like miniature golf courses or whatnot, that might have a few games. But really, it had become a bar business. A bar was really only interested in having a jukebox a cigarette vending machine, a pool table, maybe two pool tables, depending on the size of the bar, that would be coin-activated, and then maybe one or two pinball games, or one or two shuffle alleys, which is another form of entertainment we talked about before, in areas where pinball games were not legal, because this was a period of time when pinball was still heavily regulated. That was really all that the bars wanted. So you saw some target shooting games and driving games and this kind of other stuff in arcade locations and whatnot, but it was really this bar business. And at the end of the 1960s, you were starting to see arcades penetrate new locations. With the advent of the trivia games like Computer Quiz, which Nutting Associates did before they released Nolan Bushnell's Computer Space, you saw a new kind of coin-op game that had some educational value to it. And Computer Quiz was able to get into some locations, like some department stores, some shopping malls, some apartment complexes that were not going to take a pinball machine, which was considered a time waster at best and a horrific gambling device controlled by organized crime at worst. Which is why they stayed in bars. Exactly. On the heels of Computer Quiz, then you got some of the more advanced electromechanical games like Periscope that came out of Japan that was more technically sophisticated and followed by a lot of driving games, especially like Speedway from Chicago Coin and Wild Cycle from Allied Leisure. These were very sophisticated driving games with advanced sound effects, advanced collision detection mechanisms for an electromechanical game, Mm -hmm. and... They felt a little more high-tech and a little less like it was just purely gambling like a pinball machine. So Computer Quiz had started to lead the way into these new locations, like student unions on college campuses, like apartment complexes, like department stores. And there was kind of a beachhead being established there, but it was still very much a bar business. So the thing about Galaxy Game, and we'll get into this more when we go back and talk about its creation, it's a very expensive product. It's not a product that is going to fit in in a bar, just because it costs as much as anything. And how much would this thing cost? I don't know what it would have cost at the end of the day, because they would have cost reduced as time went on. But they made two prototypes, and between those two prototypes, they spent $60,000 putting them together. So roughly $30,000 apiece. Well, I think it was more twenty forty, uh, because the later prototype was more complex. They spent about 20000 on the first prototype and then about 40000 on the second prototype. Okay. And in terms of the cost to the public, you're still talking, even if it's less than 20000 because you get economies of scale as you're expanding, you're still talking about a system that's going to cost $10,000 or more for the complete package. That's just not something that a bar is going to be able to take on. Certainly, it's an actuary 
entertainment item and it's not the main focus of what they're going to have as a profit-driven model. It's something to get you in so that you spend time there and you're more inclined to buy more drinks. Right. So, you know, in the three-tiered system that we talked about before, your operator ends up bearing the largest cost, and then they will split the coin drop with the location owner, and they get their money back through coin drop. So if your operator is buying a $10,000 machine, just to throw that number out there, that's a lot to make back at a dime per game or three games for 25 cents. It's not going to work on that scale. And so that's not what they were looking to do. What they wanted to do is specifically target college campuses. Really? Like big major college? Exactly. And they saw this as a novelty piece for student unions specifically. They didn't want to be part of the coin-op industry. They didn't want to sell in to distributors who then sell to operators who then place on location. What they planned to do was build all of the machines themselves at a very slow rate. They weren't planning to mass produce these. They were just wanting to produce, you know, a few dozen of them or whatever. So these were highly custom machines that are designed to go into certain locations. So they could probably tweak the design depending on where it's going. Sure, a little bit, I think. They were planning to cut deals directly with student unions, where they would give the student union a portion of the coin drop, say 15%, in return for allowing them to put this item on location and take the majority of the coin drop, and that's how they would make their money back. So the university doesn't get much out of it, except that they do get a little bit of money out of it, and they get something for their students to pass the time with, something desirable for their students at really virtually no upfront cost. And then the majority of the revenue would go back to many computer applications, which would recoup its thousands of dollars of costs on that expensive arcade cabinet through coin drops. So this is not in any way the coin-operated amusement industry business model. It is something that you would have at a college campus, say, in the big communal recreation area or cafeteria, some sort of special place like that, maybe even the computer lab if they have one. Yeah, not not in the computer lab, because someone that had access to a computer lab could already play this game on a mini-computer for free. No, very much in student unions and cafeterias and whatnot. Okay, so definitely designed more for the public, not so much the computer nerd sitting and messing with the computer that some of the larger campuses where they actually had mainframes on campus. Right, because that's where this whole thing came about. Galaxy Game is very much based on the game Space War. I mean, it's essentially a one-for-one recreation of Space War. Space War was the very first computer game to get any kind of wide exposure. And we're using the term wide exposure here very loosely because it's still a game made for very expensive mini-computers. Well, it was made for the PDP-1, which technically isn't a mini computer, but it was kind of similar to what would eventually become mini computers. But the PDB-1 was a $120,000 machine, which was much cheaper than the mainframes of the time, which could run to a million dollars or more, but was still a hefty chunk of change. There were only about 53 of them ever sold, and not all of them had displays. There was a point-plotting display that could be shipped with the computer that was necessary for playing the game. Not everyone had them. In fact, uh, a lot of the computers were actually purchased by 
ITT to serve as switching units for his telegraph network, and none of those ever had monitors. Those weren't used for playing a game. So there may have only been 20 or so PDP-1 computers with Space War on them that ever made their way into college campuses and whatnot. But in a time when there were basically no computer games, and even if you made a few simple games like Checkers or Tic-Tac-Toe or NIM or something, they tended to be confined to a single location and a single computer in that location— This was the very first time that you had a real computer game that people across the country were playing, even if it was just a small number of computer science students. It's kind of hard to describe today how amazing Space War was in its time, because the very idea of a computer that refreshed in real time, that allowed you to enter a command or type a key and see your actions play out immediately on a teletype or a screen in front of you was pretty alien still to the computer industry at this point. That's what all computers are pretty much today. But that's not what you had in 1961 when Space War was created. Certainly you didn't, because back then you still had primarily hole-punched computer input and output. And for those who don't know, hole punches, you'd have these cards, probably about six inches wide, maybe about two to three inches tall, rectangular, and it would have an array of holes punched into it that would correspond to a punch reader, and that would be read in by the computer, and based on where this array of pins were, that would tell you the ones and zeros that the computer needed to know in order to program something. Back in the day, you would program these computers with punch cards And you'd sit there typing out on a modified typewriter, essentially. You put the little card in, you type out what you want, the card gets folded, you set that off to the side, and continue on. If you make a mistake, there's no backspace. There's no reset. You have to remake the card, or if you make a screwed up program enough, you have to redo the entire batch, because this is literally physical media with holes punched into it. And woe unto you if you had a big stack of cards and dropped them on your way to the computer. Especially if you weren't a smart person. And I imagine a lot of computer scientists eventually learned this. You make a little tick mark in the top right that says number one, number two, (laughs) number three, number four. Yeah. So anyone who's listening to this and remembers playing around with that and dropping said things, my condolences to you. (laughs) So you had to go that in. You put all that stuff in. You didn't just like go there, put that in, and then get some sort of printout back. These were mainframe computers where the time to use the computers is very limited. So you would go to the computer department and go, hi, I'd like to run this program on the mainframe and see what kind of result I get. And they go, okay, please sign your name here. Sign your name. Where's your box? Here's your box. Okay, come back in a few days, a week next Tuesday, and then they'd hand you a printout back, or they might even hand you a uh, stack of cards back, depending on what the uh, result is. And that's a lot of time to wait for some sort of computer program, especially if you get the result back and you go, oh, I meant to do plus two, not minus two there. That's right. Because there's no changing the stuff on the fly. Everything is done through what's called batch processing, which is 
literally you have a bunch of cards with a bunch of instructions and data on them, and it reads all of those, and it does all of that at once, serially. It just goes through them all serially and then spits out the results. There's no modifying what you're doing on the fly. It is just programmed to accept a series of instructions and accept a set of data and move through all of that and then move on to the next set of instructions and the next set of data. There's no stopping in the middle, changing, altering, or any kind of real-time feedback whatsoever. There's no multi-user in this thing. It's no. It's effectively just a single, I take input, I read the stuff, I go out. It's not like the mainframe that came further on where you had a bunch of terminals going in and they're trying to go off of one resource and the system goes, okay, I have so much CPU, this person's requesting that, I'll allocate 10% of the CPU to his request, 5% to this other person, 3% to that. No, this is one CPU that is completely and utterly linear where there is only one input stream, it processes that, one output stream. That's why you had to have the whole queue drop-off thing is because you couldn't have multi-users going on when you're doing this. Exactly. And very few of them had any kind of screen. And even if they had a screen, it was basically to keep track of very static processes, like keeping track of what sectors of memory were in use, stuff like that. You couldn't really manipulate a screen in real time because... These computers were just not set up to handle that. And so there were very primitive games and experiments on a few computers in the 1950s, but they were very static, very slow moving. It lended itself to turn-based puzzle games like NIM or like Checkers and whatnot, because you could give it an input and then it could run through all of its processes and then it could update a teletype or update a screen with the new static position. So the idea that in a game like Space War, you have a rocket ship. That rocket ship is obeying the laws of physics. It is moving in real time. It is following Newtonian physics. It is interacting with another ship being flown by another player. You're shooting at each other, and these torpedoes are coming at you in real time, and you have to dodge them or you get destroyed. That was science fiction for the people that were experiencing this for the first time in the early 1960s. It's essentially think of it as frame rate. The older systems could only do, say, one or two frames a minute, if that. And then here you are coming along and saying, hi, kid, here's 24 frames per second. Where you have something that's pretty much close to real video. 24 frames per second is what they generally use in... Uh, the movie industry, in order to get, give the simulation of movement, even though those are just static images and they're just showing them fast enough that the brain interpolates it as movement. The fact that they were able to get a computer to process visual output fast enough to display motion, and then as a bonus, I can then have user input. It updates that based on time. I'm keeping track of physics here. I'm keeping track of all this other stuff. That's amazing for the time. We think that's kind of weird now because I can play a game right now where I can fly a spaceship around with full Newtonian physics and full, uh, like I'm flying through a gas cloud and all this other crazy stuff. But this is the 1960s. They did not have computers back then that had frame rates. 
Exactly. And the PDP-1 was the one of the very first computers to do this. It was a product of Digital Equipment Corporation, DEC, which basically was spawned from MIT's Whirlwind project. The Whirlwind was the world's first real-time computer. That is the first computer that was designed specifically to provide instantaneous feedback to user input. Out of Whirlwind came Digital Equipment Corporation, and out of Digital Equipment came the PDP-1, and this was really the first time, I, I'm not sure that it was necessarily the very first commercial real-time computer, but this is the first time that real-time computing is even starting to penetrate university research labs and defense contractors, certainly not the general public. This is the first time that college students are starting to have access to this kind of thing because mainframe computer access was very carefully guarded, as Jeff was just describing. You could not just go in and say, I want to use the computer. And on these computers, you kind of could. Most of the time, they were still earmarked for serious research projects. But oftentimes, universities would allow other activities to go on when the computer was not in use, which would normally mean overnight or on the weekends. Because the other thing about computers back then is it was a very time-consuming and fraught process to power these things up and down. It wasn't just the matter of pushing a button and then your prompt comes up like it or is even today. the Apple II of you had to flip a thing in the back and hit the reset button. This is an involved and tedious process. So they did not turn off these computers unless they absolutely had to for maintenance or something like that. So the computer would be running all the time. So if there was a period of time when no one was using the computer for official research, it was often possible to get on the computer to run your own little experiments or do your own little thing. And that's how the original kind of space war hacker communities sprang up. It's real-time. It's fast-paced for the time. It's adrenaline-pumping. It's competitive. It's great, and it's got this otherworldly feel to it. You know, every, today, everything's raster. It's kind of hard to describe, if you haven't experienced it, what a point plotting or a vector display is like. A vector display, unlike a raster, when you have a raster display you have the screen rendered as a series of pixels. And basically, you have an electron gun in the old TVs. They don't use electron guns now. But in the old TVs, you have an electron gun, and it starts at the top, and it draws an image literally pixel by pixel, and it goes line by line down the entire screen. Uh, 60 frames in uh, the U.S. It's different in those crazy PAL territories. And that's where you get the whole interlace and progressive, and that's where it, when it's redrawing these screens, it either does every line or every other line, and depending on which one it is, it looks crisper, looks better, or whatever. But there's a cost trade-off and cost in order to create that. Exactly. And as we discussed in our earlier computer episodes, it's very memory-intensive to fill an entire screen because you're having to do every single pixel individually. What was done a lot of times in the early days when memory was at a premium is what's called a vector display or a point plotting display. They work basically the same way, the difference being that a vector display actually draws a line between two vertices, whereas a point plotting display will render a line that looks pretty much the same, but it's actually rendering every individual point across that line rather than doing vertice 1 and vertice 2 and then having the line automatically draw between them. If you sort of think back to physics, if you took it, Vector is a direction and a magnitude, 
with the point plotting, I'm just going just like a grid. I take row three, column 20, turn it on. And if you're trying to address that from a memory standpoint, you have to have enough memory in order to address every single pixel combination, depending on whatever your resolution is. But with a vector, you can use a lot less memory in order to address everything because you're saying, okay, I want to turn this pixel on. Fantastic. I want to go in this direction for this long. That takes a lot less memory to tell a computer, I want to go start here, go in this direction, and have it be this long. I don't have to draw out every single one and go, okay, this point, this point, this point, this point, this point, that point. Right. For doing a complex picture, it's a rubbish system. But for doing outlines of things, it allows you to actually do a higher, much, much, much higher resolution of graphics with the same amount of memory because you're only turning on a very small number of of pixels. You're just controlling. I mean, it's not even really turning on pixels. You're literally just telling the beam, turn on here, go this direction, turn off there. The beam is literally just drawing lines and on the just screen. It's so fast that to our naked eye that it looks like a solid line, even though it's just a quick, I'm going to scan this one spot, almost like a, a laser beam and an old sci-fi thing when they like shoot one laser beam across the enemy forces. It's just like that, except across the screen. And it's kind of neat if you... Um, we want, you went to an old arcade uh, museum once, Alex and I did, and they actually had this old Star Trek and Star Wars game. Mm-hmm. And they actually were both vector graphics. And it, yeah, it's line art, but it draws you in. You don't, the squares aren't filled in or anything, but you've got the outline of whatever the ship is. But it's so crisp and unique that it just draws you into the thrill of it. And it glows. I mean, it glows in a way that raster displays just don't. I mean, there's something... Even modern ones. mm -hmm, There's something almost otherworldly about a vector screen that really draws you in. And so it kind of, I think even having that vector point plotting display even enhances this feeling even more if you are a computer science or electrical engineering student in the 1960s seeing Space War for the first time. It's there's stuff moving on the screen. There's stuff shooting on the screen. It's all glowing. I mean, this was intoxicating for a certain type of mathematically and science-oriented or engineering-oriented college student. This was the most amazing thing ever. Yeah, just think about it. You got these vector things are based off of, say, oscilloscopes which are used in electrical engineering in order to see what the waveforms are as the voltage is going from point A to point B, and you can see, okay, there's a square, there's a pyramid, so on and so forth. That is vector graphics there because you just have the gun shooting at the screen, and it glows. It's possible you can still find these on a lot of college campuses in the electrical department, um, in the electrical engineering department, because they're still used today because you still need to see how these waveforms look out. If you're in college and you can actually go take a look at it, check it out and just look at how it, it may not look that great because it might be green or white, but you will understand what we're talking about when we say it glows. It has this crispness to it. It has this unique flavor. Then imagine that sort of thing as 
a big television display and then constantly updating and drawing spaceships flying around, shooting lasers back and forth, all that kind of thing. You can see from that where this is going. Exactly. You don't want to overplay the popularity of Space War because it was limited to maybe only 15 or 20 institutions. And a couple of scholars named Marty Goldberg and uh, Devin Monins actually did some research where they tried to contact individuals that had been exposed to space war when they were in school in the 60s. And it turns out even a lot of the places that had PDP-1s and had access to the game didn't necessarily have it playing very often. They found, for instance, that Harvard and Michigan, uh, two schools that had the game, there was basically no playing of the game going on. People weren't interested in it there. But there were a few individual places where it was very popular. MIT was one of those. That's where it was born. So, of course, it was popular there. Yeah. And the other one that was insanely popular was Stanford. Hmm. And there's an MIT connection there because the Stanford Artificial Intelligence Laboratory, SAIL for short, was created by literally the founder of the artificial intelligence field, the person that came up with the name artificial intelligence, mm -hmm. John McCarthy, who had been at MIT in the late 50s, early 60s, doing his pioneering AI work. And one of his assistants on that project was a fellow named Steve Russell. And Steve Russell was the primary mover in the programming of Space War. He came up with the concept in concert with a couple of his friends at Harvard, uh, J. Martin Greats and Wayne Wietanen, but then he was the one that did the primary programming of it at MIT. When McCarthy goes from MIT to Stanford, Steve Russell goes with him hmm. to be his assistant again. He had actually left the AI lab at MIT for a while. He wasn't working for McCarthy directly. There's a lot of confusion about that in the historical narrative, but he had actually left. When he did Space War, he was actually working at Harvard, but he had been at MIT and he created it at MIT. Then he joined up with McCarthy again when McCarthy moved to Stanford. So Steve Russell was then responsible for putting Space War on the computers at Stanford and at Sale starting with a PDP-1, which was the first computer they got. Then they upgraded to a PDP-6, which was a fairly unsuccessful mainframe that DEC did, but Stanford had one, so they put it on that. And then they upgraded from a 6 to a 10, which was a highly successful mainframe, more capable and more expensive than a true mini computer, but not quite as sophisticated as a full-on mainframe. They put it on a PDP-10, and they actually linked that PDP-10 to the PDP-6, and so then they had this kind of 610 hybrid. Hmm. And they had Space War on that. And the reason that Space War migrated all of these systems at Stanford is that you had that Steve Russell connection. Space War was insanely popular at Stanford. It's hard to overstate with the people at the AI lab. I don't mean with the general populace of the university. Not the general student body. Right. But with the people in the AI lab, it was insanely popular. Russell and McCarthy came to Stanford in 1962. In 1963, the computer publication Datamation was doing a report on the computing at Stanford. 
you know, this is less than a year later, and they're already saying administrators have had to forbid anyone from playing Space War during business hours because it's tying up too many computer resources. <laughs> I mean, it was huge. And in fact, once they had a time-sharing system up, because by the time you get to the mid-60s, you're starting to get to the point where you have computers that can do things for multiple people at once. We finally have multi-user systems as opposed to just a single in-out punch card thing. Exactly. And, and this is called time sharing. I mean, it, it basically functions in the same way as multitasking would work on your PC. It's just that instead of you telling your computer to run multiple processes for you at the same time via multitasking, it's 5, 10, 15 on larger systems, even 100 or 1,000 people all accessing the same computer at the same time and all doing their own individual program and being given the illusion that they are the only one using that computer. But in fact, what's happening is it's working five seconds for you, then five seconds for this person, then 10 seconds for that person. So on and so forth. Exactly. By this time in the mid-60s, the system at sale is timeshared because McCarthy, in addition to being an AI pioneer, was also one of the pioneers of timesharing. They actually, some of the programmers at Sale actually came up with a system called Space War Mode. Hmm. And basically, Space War Mode was an optimized time-sharing system where they made it so that that PDP-610 hybrid was only using the bare minimum resources required to run Space War, thus freeing up the rest of the system to do other people's work. So it was a way of optimizing the computer to try to get more space war time by saying, look, we can play space war right now. It's okay because we're using as few resources as possible and you guys can still be doing your AI experiments over here. And it's not going to impact you too much and we can blow each other up in space war. Right. That's how popular the game was at Stanford. It was insanely popular with the engineering students there. It was even so popular that they conducted what was probably the first ever true video game tournament there. Hmm. I mean, there very well might have been other competitions between multiple players held at MIT or one of these other institutions. But this is the first one that was publicized, the Intergalactic Space War Olympics. They basically did a an elimination tournament and Rolling Stone, the magazine that was a very popular symbol of the counterculture back then, music publication primarily. Rolling Stone magazine actually covered this event. They sponsored the event and they covered this event and they actually did a write-up on this event that ran in Rolling Stone magazine in December 1971. So this is Space War getting national attention in an actual honest-to-God mainstream magazine that people read. And a music one at that. Mm -hmm. Well, it's primarily music, but it's kind of a cultural magazine, too. So it's trying a bit to... Of both. Right. And so you can kind of see, even though we're at this point now where most people have still not heard about Space War, we're to the point now where you can see that there are people having fun with it, and it's getting press coverage. Walter Cronkite, in 1969, did a segment on one of his shows, the very celebrated news anchor where he was at a government facility somewhere on the East Coast, and he played some space war on national television. Analog, which was a sci-fi magazine, ran an article about a variant of the game that was created at the University of Minnesota by a former MIT student that had recreated it there. So there's kind of this vague idea amongst the people that are playing it regularly that there may be a market for this, that this is something that maybe the public would enjoy. 
Well, especially if you're getting major news anchors, Walter Cronkite, back then, he was a major news anchor. Most trusted man in America. Yeah. I know it's a little bit difficult for us today, especially now, to really understand what that means. Today, you got a lot of different sources of news. You got podcasts like this one. You've got radio, TV. There's a lot of different sources out there. Back then, you just had over-the-air broadcast. You had effectively three channels, NBC, ABC, and CBS. That's it. You wanted your news, you watched one of those three. And Walter Cronkite is sort of like the big news anchor. When there was a major national event, you tuned into Walter Cronkite and you watched what he had to say about that. Uh, there's a famous thing uh, when JFK was assassinated, when Walter Cronkite is there, he literally takes off his glasses and looks at the camera. And it's just the gravity of that moment and the way he presents that is just, if you ever look at it, heck, I'll throw it in the show notes. It, it sort of conveys how this is. It's a different era back then when, with that kind of way news was done, where you didn't have a 24-hour news cycle or anything. And having someone like that, these guys only had like an hour segment a night. You had your evening news. Evening news was Walter Conkite for an hour. <laughs> you don't have 24-hour news where they could devote segments to all sorts of things. Right. And the fact that he's pulling time out of an hour-long segment to talk about space war, computers, games, when you have all the stuff that was going on in the 60s and 70s, all the new stuff that was going on, a whole bunch of other things that are arguably more important, and he takes the time out to do that, that means that this is at least pretty decently major. Exactly. And again, you don't want to overstate it, because it's not like suddenly the entire country was aware of space war or anything like that. It was still very niche. But it's just that this showed that there could be a way forward to commercializing this. So there were a couple of people that came up with that idea of commercializing it at pretty much the same time. One of those was Nolan Bushnell, who of course went on to found Atari with Ted Dabney. He saw the game for the first time at Stanford. I know some people are going to say he saw it at the University of Utah. That's that's a whole other podcast, but for the purpose One we already did. Yes. <laughs> for the purpose of this podcast, he saw it at Stanford. Just just let's just go with that. So he saw it at Stanford for the first time because he had come to the Bay Area to work for Ampex Corporation, and he was playing Go at various Go clubs around town, including one that had some Stanford AI lab workers in it. And so one of those Stanford AI lab workers introduced him to Space War at Sale. So he was one of the ones that came up with the idea from seeing it there. And the other one that we're going to talk about in more detail today was Bill Pitts. Bill Pitts was a college student at Stanford University. He matriculated there in the fall of 1964. He was kind of a science nerd. That was his thing. He was kind of doing the math science route. He wasn't a computer science person. At that time, there was barely the idea of a discipline called computer science. The vast majority of computer work that was done was done in the electrical engineering field. And this kind of goes back to the way the computers developed because in the 1920s and 1930s, the analog computers of the day, these are not digital computers, these are not numbers-based ones and zeros computers, analog computers that are actually physically 
simulating phenomenon with gears, with pulleys, with levers, with mechanical operations, or electromechanical operations. It doesn't have to be purely mechanical. The analog computers had become a very important part of developing power grids. Because when we were first electrifying the country, when we were generating and transmitting power, it really wasn't very well understood. The equations to make this stuff work are actually very complicated. And just pulling out your slide rule and going through a bunch of these complex equations wasn't going to really help you figure out what was actually going on in electric power generation and transmission. So analog computing, which did predate this stuff, analog computing goes all the way back to the 19th century, analog computing was very important for simulating power grids. You would use capacitors and inducers and resistors to build essentially a miniature power grid in a room and figure out how the electricity was going to behave and how those generators were going to behave. So because of that, computers first grew up in electrical engineering departments Mm -hmm. because they're electrical components and they were often, though not exclusively, used for electrical equations. Computer science as a separate discipline didn't really exist yet. Some schools didn't offer any kind of undergraduate computer instruction. Some did offer some undergraduate computer instruction, but it was mostly through electrical engineering. There was not a field you could major in yet called computer science in most parts of the country. Bill Pitts was not an electrical engineering major. He was not a computer science major because there was not a computer science major at Stanford. Computer science was a graduate discipline at Stanford for many years. I forget off the top of my head when they finally offered a major called computer science. But it was just a graduate course for the longest time. So Bill Pitts was actually a statistics major. Hmm. Math. The thing is, statistics was and is a rather niche field. And the Stanford Statistics Department was having a hard time recruiting majors for that field. So they would allow students that were interested in a statistics major and that could hack it, that were smart enough, obviously, to take graduate courses as part of their undergraduate degree as a way of enticing more people to take the major. And if he wants to do the computer science thing, which is a graduate one, and he's good enough at statistics, why not? Exactly. So even though his BA was in statistics, he took a lot of computer courses, uh, computer programming and whatnot. So he became familiar with computers, and he was exposed to space war on a PDP-1 at Stanford. Another thing that Bill Pitts really liked doing, this is a pretty well-known story, but we'll go through it all anyway. Another thing that Bill Pitts loved doing was breaking and entering. Really? Breaking and entering? <laughs> Bill Pitts was an explorer, and many people of like his stripe were. Yeah, though really, uh, even more specifically, a university explorer. Okay. But yes, like an urban explorer. Stanford, of course, is famous for having a complex network of steam tunnels that run under the university. And there have been many students over the years that have made a avocation, a hobby, of exploring the steam tunnels under campus. He also liked breaking into university buildings or breaking into restricted areas of university buildings to discover locations that were off limits to the, to the general populace. Hmm. That, was, that was just his jam. And so one day he is driving down the road uh, a few miles outside the uh, center of Stanford campus, and he sees a sign for a building along the side of the road. 
He can tell from the sign that it's a university building because it's got that font or design or whatever of a Stanford player. Yeah, a Stanford sign. But it's a building he's never been to before. And this is out in the hills is where this is. You know, it's not in the center of Stanford campus. So he decides that he's going to come back later. He's on his way someplace else, but he's going to come back later. So he returns later that night. He drives up this road back into the hills, and he discovers this university building. And his plans to break into it are thwarted because he tries the door and it's unlocked. Well, it's welcoming. (laughs) (laughs) But he walks in, and it's very brightly lit. And here in the middle is this very gigantic computer. Because Mr. William Pitts has just discovered the Stanford Artificial Intelligence Laboratory. (laughs) This moment literally changed Bill Pitts' life. I mean, he'd already been learning about computers. He'd already taken some introductory programming courses. But here was a place with a computer that was accessible all hours of the day and was accessible basically to any Stanford University student. Now, again, the AI lab was primarily devoted to AI research, and the vast majority of stuff being done was being done by AI lab personnel. But he was able to convince the person running the AI lab from McCarthy, a fellow by the name of Lester Ernest, to let him use the computer when nobody else was working on the computer, which basically meant staying there overnight. Why not? And we already said that shutting down these big, massive machines is a pain. Not to mention starting them back up, and I've dealt with old equipment, and I know turning them off and turning them back on again is sometimes a perilous process. <laughs> but the fact that, well, he can go there whenever he wants. He's a night owl because he wants to go do effectively urban exploring at night. Why not? Exactly. So that was pretty much the end of him as a good college student. He he graduated. I mean, he graduated with his degree in statistics in 1968. He didn't flunk out or anything. But classes were no longer his focus after that. He was a programmer from that point on. And he was in the AI lab as much as possible. Eventually, he did become an actual employee in the AI lab as well. So he was doing stuff in an official capacity there, too. And, of course, like everybody who darkened the AI lab's door in those days, he discovered space war. Mm-hmm. And he greatly enjoyed space war. Bill Pitts had a friend from high school. They went to different colleges, but they were still in touch. Named Hugh Tuck, who we discussed at the top of the episode. Hugh Tuck was not a computer science person. His family owned a company called Atlas Heating and Cooling that had been founded all the way back in 1903. That was one of the largest HVAC companies in the Bay Area. Hmm. So his family was very successful and very wealthy. He runs the company now. He runs Atlas. He's basically retired at this point, but he's still kind of the titular head of the company. And when he fully retires, his sons are taking over the business. So the family business is still going, Atlas Heating and Cooling. So he was studying to be a mechanical engineer because it's HVAC stuff, you know. Right. He was studying at California Polytechnic. So he was not in the Palo Alto area, but he'd come back from time to time, of course, you know, to visit family and friends and whatnot. And so when he was back in town, Bill Pitts introduced Hugh Tuck to Space War as well. Hugh Tuck had never been an arcade guy. I mean, he really was never interested in pinball or that kind of stuff when he was younger. But he just thought Space War was the absolute most amazing thing he'd ever seen, pretty much, for all of the reasons that we previously went into. It was Hugh Tuck 
probably around 1968. Tristan Donovan Replay puts it in 66, but that's probably too early. Probably around 1968. Hugh Tuck was the one that said, you know, if we could put a coin slot on the front of this computer, I bet you we could make some money. Hmm. Makes sense that he'd be the one because he comes from a, a family of, of business people. <laughs> right. Entrepreneurs. You see, yeah. You see something that's interesting? I think we could make the money on this. Let's see what we can do. Exactly. But at the time, there was just no way. Because we're still talking about computers that cost in the high tens or low hundred thousands of dollars. Cost prohibitive. Incredibly cost prohibitive. Unless you are a government or university, you are some sort of business that can justify the cost. And not just any business, a major business. Exactly. It had gotten to the point where, you know, mid-level businesses were starting to be able to afford them, and certainly most colleges had them. But it's still not something that you can stick in front of the general public just on a cost basis. But Bill Pitts didn't forget that conversation and didn't forget those experiences playing Space War together. After he graduated, he spent some time as a programmer at the AI lab. He spent a little bit of time in the Navy. And then he went to work for Lockheed. Lockheed Martin. Mm-hmm. As a programmer on a PDP-10 system. He started in 1971, early 1971, but he was actually hired a little bit before that. But when he was hired, they didn't actually have the PDP-10 yet. So he couldn't actually start doing anything yet. While he was kind of waiting for this job to begin, he was just kind of doing whatever. And at some point, he noticed that DEC, the same company we've been talking about all along here, had just released a new computer at the end of 1970 called the PDP-11. Mm -hmm. So DEC had kind of two lines of computers going on. On the one hand, you had from the PDP-1 to the PDP-6 to the PDP-10, and then kind of up from there to the, the VAX workstations, I guess. What I was saying before, where they're kind of, they're cheaper than a mainframe, but they're not kind of dirt cheap mini computers, but they're, they're kind of in, a, in between space between mini computers and mainframes. And then on the other hand, they were the ones that really pioneered this concept of the mini computer, which is a computer that is more limited than a mainframe, but you use a lot of tricks in the way you build it and in the way you manage the memory so that for maybe 90%, and I'm just throwing that number out there, that's not scientific, maybe 90% of all computer functions, it does just as fast as a full-fledged mainframe. Then for that, that extra 10%, those really advanced kind of calculations, it, it just can't do those as well. So if you need to do a lot of intensive calculations and whatnot, you need Floating a full point stuff. Yeah, you need a full mainframe. And they're also far more difficult to to program for because they do have limited memory. So you're having to use a lot of tricks to get it to do the same thing. So it's not always as economical as having a full mainframe, depending on what you need to do with it. But it does most functions almost as well as a mainframe, except instead of costing a million dollars. It costs maybe $50,000. Which is significantly less. Exactly. And of course, with Moore's Law in operation, it just gets better from there. I mean, the PDP-8, which was really the first widespread mini-computer, there were a couple of mini-computers before that, but this was the big one. The PDP-8 was a $50,000 computer, but then as Moore's Law takes over, the technology gets better, the prices go down. So now you have the PDP-11 computer, 
And the PDP-11 computer only costs about $12,000. Now, this is $12,000, remember, in 1970 money. Which is significantly more than $12,000 now. Exactly. So $12,000 in 1970 would be just over $74,000 today. Still in the realm of doable, but significant. But that just gives you the idea. I mean, the price has come down ridiculously from even a $50,000 mini computer, never mind a million dollar or $700,000 or whatever mainframe. Now you're into the realm where you start thinking to yourself, could we do something with this? Could we make something that'll work? Because at the time, an arcade machine, kind of a pinball machine, was probably about a $700 machine, maybe. It was mostly electromechanical. Some of the more complex games, your periscopes, your speedways, these EM stuff, probably in the $1,000 to $1,200 range. Mm -hmm. So if you're taking a computer, obviously even a $12,000 computer, even a $5,000 computer for that matter, would still be too expensive to just do one game on it. Mm -hmm. But if you hook up that computer to multiple displays and timeshare that computer so that it can simultaneously run four, six, eight games of Space War at the same time. And then have them join together in one big, massive slug-it-out fest. Mm -hmm. Maybe, maybe you can make that economical. And think about that. We've already established that and earlier where we said these people have developed timesharing. They figured out how to make Space War work really well on limited resources. We've established that it's popular with people who actually get to play with, with the game and can play with their friends and do stuff in the labs. And you got the glowing effect of these screens and you got the timesharing thing where you can have one system handle and service a lot of different users and not just do in-out one process at a time. Exactly. So Bill Pitts has this idea and is like, maybe we can do something with this. And so he calls up his buddy Hugh, and they decide to give this a go. Kind of in late 1970, they decide to give this a go. The division of labor is almost entirely Bill Pitts doing everything, Hugh Tuck not doing much. And that's not... That's not denigrating Hugh at all. That was that was the way they decided to do it because Bill Pitts was the programmer. The vast majority of putting this together was going to be programming that PDP-11 so that it can play Space War and so can timeshare Space War. That's Bill Pitts' job. Hugh Tuck brings two things to the table. First, he is a mechanical engineer. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to putting together the practical sides of building an arcade system, like a cabinet, like a coin slot, like controls. He's the guy that kind of knows how to do that because he knows the mechanical stuff. Also, he's the money man, not him personally, but his family is very wealthy because of Atlas Heating and Cooling. So he gets his father to invest heavily through Atlas. Atlas is the one that actually invests, but it's his father because he's father family runs company the, and he runs it. It's not a publicly and, traded company. Uh, he gets a sister to invest. His sister is married to uh, someone who's kind of a business consultant kind of guy. And so they kind of get them to invest and kind of pick his brain a little bit for some 
you know, business advice and whatnot. He's got the connections. Hugh Tuck brings the connections mm-hmm. and the he's funding. The guy. Right. He's not right. And I mean, he's not really a businessman. I mean, yes, his family runs the company, but his degree is mechanical engineering. Obviously, he does eventually take over the company. I don't know that he had huge amounts of business acumen at this time, but he was kind of a businessman because even in the uh, business plan, they note that Hugh Tuck is going to be the primary salesman for the first few units. Now, only the first few. They planned to hire, as soon as they were able, a professional sales and marketing guy to do that right. stuff, because Hugh is not. But yeah, you've got that kind of same situation that we've seen in a lot of the other early startups, whether it be Atari, whether it be Electronic Arts, whether it be some of the early computer game, other computer game companies. You see that combination of the technical guy and the business guy. It it doesn't quite work it doesn't as have well. The efficiently business, like I'm the big suit guy. I have all these connections here, but you have the division of labor and focus. You have a guy whose primarily focus is develop technical. Here's the vision I want to do, and there's another guy who works with them and who goes, okay. I'm willing to work on networking in order to make the business side of this work so that this can come to pass. Whether or not he actually had the experience in the business side is immaterial here. The fact that you need this duopoly for almost any real business to be successful, you need these two core components. Someone focusing on business, someone focusing on the technical development, whatever. And that's why we have seen this time and time again in the companies that we've talked about and the companies that have existed in the video game industry. The major kind of hurdles in putting this thing together, I mean, programming the computer really isn't that big a deal. It takes time, but I mean, Space War is so widespread and the source code's so widespread because this is a game that's spread through people sharing it with each other. So the source code has always been out there. You might have to do... A little bit of tweaking to put it on a PDP-11, but at least it's still a PDP computer, so there's probably not huge amounts of changes you have to make because it's a similar operating environment. The old-style version of porting the game from one console to the other. Exactly, and you've got the source code because everyone's got the source code. It's not proprietary. And, you know, you have to do some time-sharing stuff, but by this point, time-sharing... Well, I wouldn't say it's heavily, heavily established, but I mean, time sharing is a known quantity. So, I mean, obviously there's some challenging technical stuff Bill Pitts had to do, but that stuff was all very doable. Probably the harder part was trying to kind of turn that into an arcade game because that's an expertise that really isn't available on the West Coast. The center of the coin-op industry is Chicago at this time. That is where everybody is. I mean, it's not just where the pinball companies are, it's... The guys who make the parts for the pinball companies are there. I mean, it's a whole infrastructure there. So you don't have that out in California. So then it becomes, okay, how do you, how do you get a coin door on this thing? How do you get controls on this thing? How do you make sure it's not a slug? Exactly. So they lucked into a coin mechanism, actually. And I don't know the full details about this. Uh, got this from a uh, person, Keith Smith, no relation at all who is writing a book on the early arcade industry, All in Color for a Quarter. He also has a blog, allincolorforquarter.blogspot.com. I definitely recommend checking that out and checking his book out when it finally comes out. He's hoping to do something this year, but may get pushed back. I learned from him that they actually, Roe, which was one of the big three in jukeboxes, Roe International learned that they were doing this project 
and actually donated a, a coin door for the prototype. Really? A coin mechanism <laughs> for the prototype. So that was that was useful. Then joysticks. You know, it's today there are people making their own arcade cabinets, you know, like doing a MAME cabinet or something. Right. I, all I the time. I played around with that idea myself. I actually have sort of like the framework out in the barn, sadly neglected for many years, but thought about it. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, I mean, today a joystick is like, yeah, joysticks are everywhere. I mean, it's just a very common technology. In the 1960s, in the late 1960s, early 1970s, it was not. The joystick, as we know it today, began as a military device. The Germans actually invented it. There were quote-unquote joysticks before that, like flight sticks and old biplanes and whatnot. But the thing that we really think of as a joystick today, which is the kind of classic arcade joystick with a ball on top and then, you know, move that ball in different directions. That was really uh, invented by the Germans in World War II, and it was primarily used to guide ordnance and stuff. That's It was a military application. You need that sort of fine-grained control when you're trying to aim a gun or something at certain levels and you want to do really small incremental changes. Right. There really weren't joysticks in the civilian world at that time. The arcade games were primarily pinball games. And even the kind of more advanced and elaborate games that were starting to come out, they didn't have those kind of joystick controllers usually. They usually had things that looked like flight control sticks. They had, you know, those periscope controls for periscope. They had steering wheels for driving games. They didn't have what we think of today as the one joystick, two buttons kind of standard classic arcade game setup of a mid to late 80s arcade game. That didn't exist yet. So it's not like you could just order a joystick from somewhere and have that delivered. You practically had to make it. Or you had to get military surplus. Mm. And they tried both routes. They were thinking of making their own at first, and Hugh Tuck actually made some sketches for some joysticks. But then they got some military surplus from a local military surplus store. Uh, old B-52 sticks. <laughs> sticks that were in B- joysticks that were in B-52s. Mm-hmm. So they were incredibly durable. They were far more durable than they really needed for an arcade game. But still, that's a good thing for an arcade game, something that can take a lot of abuse. Exactly. In contrast, uh, Computer Space, which is being developed at the same time by Nolan Bushnell and Ted Dabney, they used buttons for their game. And they knew that buttons were not as good as using something like a joystick. So, I mean, you actually have a button for up, a button for down. You know, you actually have to control individual buttons like, you know, WSAD or whatever on a keyboard, except not nearly as, you know, good a control. They knew that a joystick would be preferable, but they didn't think to do military surplus or they weren't interested in doing military surplus. I don't know. And or they couldn't find it. I mean, right. well, you don't really see that many military surplus stores on your corner street. Sure, though they are in the same city as Pitts and Tuck are. So they tried creating their own kind of joystick control at one point. And like, it didn't survive the first day of testing. Wow. They couldn't make it durable enough. They didn't have the expertise at that time. Now, eventually, obviously, the arcade game industry developed that expertise as joysticks became a desirable control scheme. But it's just too primitive then. Yeah. At that early stage, they couldn't do it. But Computer Space didn't have joysticks. Galaxy Game did because they had that military surplus. They got those parts secondhand, essentially. And then they built a nice wood cabinet. It was a pretty large cabinet. It actually had a seat as part of it because they were trying to encourage people to play for extended sessions. 
So have a chair here built in. You don't have to haul one over. Exactly. And they did that in the pricing, too. They decided, as I alluded to at the top of the episode, that they were going to do a dime per game. Because at this time, quarter play was starting to infiltrate the arcade, but quarter play wasn't completely established in the arcade yet. A lot of things were still dime machines. If you want to think of that in context, when Alex and I were doing arcade when we were kids, quarters were everywhere, and we started to see the slow advent of 50 cents in. Mm-hmm. These days, you see mostly 50 cents, 775 cents, but primarily, actually, most games take a dollar. Mm-hmm. And just imagine that if you were a bit younger today, maybe I think about five years ago, they was more 50 cents, 75 cents before they went to a dollar. That is more common now. But I think now you're starting to see some changes where it goes from a dollar to buck fifty, two dollars for some of the more higher end games. Mm-hmm. So it was priced a dime per game, but you could buy three games at a time for twenty five cents. So you got a slight discount for buying multiple games up front. They really were trying to create a situation where someone would come and play for a long time because this is such an exotic system that they figure that if they get a couple of people duking it out for a while, that's going to attract a crowd to see this strange new thing. And then the people in that crowd are going to want to play it. And so then you get lines forming, and then other people are drawn in because they see, why is there suddenly a big line forming here? And then they see it, and then they come in. And in fact, on the first prototype for a time, they even had a second monitor hooked up so that spectators could see it. That's pretty smart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they really were trying to play up this novelty of it. So they encouraged long-term play sessions, both through the seat in the cabinet and through the pricing of the games. It's almost like uh, the spectator video game sport before we have it now with Twitch and YouTube. You have a couple people playing a game, and then you have other people watching it and enjoying, maybe commenting on it. And then want to play too as a result. Oh, sure. And that's very much what the arcade was like. I mean, we won't digress too much into that, but that's really what video arcade culture came to be all about after Space Invaders, when you started having the high score chasing be a major part of things. Even then after that, when the high score chasing kind of gave way to the competitive games like your Street Fighter 2s and Mortal Kombat's, it was all about being able to have somebody put on a show and attract attention and then everyone else wanting to to follow them onto the machine. That's that's very much what, what the arcade is driven by to a large degree. So they had this initial system in place, and they spent about $20,000, like I said, putting this whole thing together. Not too bad. Well, you know, $20,000. let us do our calculations again here real fast. $20,000 in 1971, because by this point, we're talking late 1971. Converted to 2016. $118,000 today. So about the price of a house today. This was not a straightforward, simple, cheapo project. And you see, this was the difference, again, comparing and contrasting between Pitts and Tuck and Bushnell and Dabney. Bushnell and Dabney realized early on that they were not going to be able to make an economical system using a computer. Now, they were using a cheaper computer. They were using a Data General Nova. The Data General Nova was the first computer to smash the 10,000 price barrier. Mm -hmm. But it's a more limited system than PDP-11. 
So they were going to use the Nova, which you could get for the the standard setup was kind of eight thousand dollars uh, with a certain amount of memory. I think that's sixteen k memory, uh, and some other stuff like an input and whatnot was eight thousand. The base computer without the expanded memory was four thousand, and Data General was very good about doing bulk discounts. So it was even theoretically possible to maybe even get a Nova for a thousand dollars. I'm not saying Bushnell and Dabney would have gone for an $1,000 Nova. I'm just saying that gives you the idea of... If it takes off, you're going to have economy of scale. Right. So they were going to use a cheaper computer. But they soon discovered that that cheaper computer could not run enough games of Space War. Because they had to do the same thing. They had to timeshare it. Even a four dollars or $8,000 computer is too expensive for an arcade. You're competing against arcade machines that are between five dollars to $1,000. And they hundred to a thousand dollars, right? And they were specifically targeting the arcade market because Nolan Bushnell had worked at an arcade in an amusement park, and so he understood the coin-operated business, and he was looking at infiltrating the coin-operated business, the traditional business. But he figured if he could run six games, maybe even four games off of a single computer, then that would be fine, because he was time-sharing too. But he finally realized at some point that that was just impossible, that Data General Nova was just too primitive to do that. A PDP-11 could run four games of Space War at the same time. A Data General Nova just could not. So they realized very early on that they would have to go all hardware. And if they were going all hardware, it was going to be a lot cheaper. Mm -hmm. Because we're talking about integrated circuits and diodes. We're talking about things that were 10 cent components, 25 cent components. And then slap a television in it, get a used one for 50 bucks or whatever, just black and white television. I mean, we're not doing color here. And, you know, you have to put a cabinet together and buy a power supply or something to hook into it. But you're getting much close to the cost of an arcade machine as opposed to the cost of an actual computer. Right. So they had to make compromises. Their game was not Space War. Computer space was you controlling a spaceship and two hardware-controlled flying saucers. And you tried to shoot them down more often than they shot you down. That's not Space War at all. Space War is two people controlling spaceships. There's a sun in the center of the screen that is generating gravity well, and you're stalking each other on on this map here. That's Space War, completely different. Bushnell was the smarter businessman. He went the route that allowed him to actually put together a product that could be sold. These guys were just dead set on recreating Space War, and they did it. In their $20,000 system, which consisted of a PDP-11 time-shared computer and an HP display adapter, television or monitor or whatever, and a cabinet and accessories and whatnot, they recreated Space War pretty much flawlessly. Wow. And they put some options in there, too. Like, there was an option to remove the sun if you didn't want the sun. They even put in a one-player practice mode. They didn't put an AI in, a full AI, but basically there was a one-player mode where the other ship would fly around the screen, and it had just enough intelligence not to crash directly into the sun, Uh, Mm -hmm. but it wouldn't shoot back at you. It was basically a practice mode. In computer space, the flying saucers actually shot back at you. It had a very primitive form of artificial intelligence in it. They're almost like a drone ship, and you're trying to shoot it down. Mm-hmm. They were able to get this game together, and they got permission to place it in uh, the Treadsetter Union at Stanford University. They placed it at first in a, I think, coffee shop 
on one of the upper floors of the Union. This original cabinet actually did not have the computer in it. The original cabinet only had the display and the controls and, you know, the, the bench and everything. They actually ran a 100-foot cable from the cabinet to the attic of the Union, huh. where they actually had the computer. What, the, what was the reason behind that? Theft and damage or what? That's a good question. I don't really know. I don't know if they were worried about theft or if it was just that it would make the cabinet too heavy, having the computer in it with everything else. I honestly don't know. But yeah, they actually ran a cable between the computer and the cabinet. Huh. And they put this on location in late November 1971. And I kind of... in Stanford. Yeah, Treadsetter Student Union, Stanford University. Okay. As I alluded to at the end of our last episode, most sources going off of comments that Bill Pitts has made in later interviews, just, you know, years and years, decades after the fact, said that they placed it on location in September of 1971. And a lot of people have taken that to mean that it was the very first coin-operated game. Even then, it's not. See, Computer Space shipped in either late November or early December 1971. The logic is that if Computer Space shipped in late November and Galaxy Game was on location in September, Galaxy Game is the first coin-operated video game that the public was ever exposed to. That would make sense. But that was a prototype. The November release of Computer Space was the actual commercial release of the game. The September 1971 Galaxy Game would have been just a prototype put on location. And Nolan Bushnell and Ted Dabney put a prototype on location before they started mass producing the game, too, because that's what you did in the coin-op industry. Once you had a game mostly complete, you put it in an arcade, and you got feedback on the game. Whether or not we have balance issues, technical difficulties, something that you don't think about that would only really come to light in the actual abuse of an arcade. And whether it makes money. There are plenty more games that go out on test that never actually get released because the coin drop isn't big enough. Hmm. They're gauging commercial appeal as well as looking for technical issues. Okay. Of course, Computer Space was out before November on test. And according to Marty Goldberg and Kurt Vendell, who have written the most in-depth, it's fair to say, history of Atari's early years, they claim that the game went out on test in August. Of 1971. So if it did go out on August, then you have to count that before Galaxy Game coming in September because they're both tests. Yeah. They're both tests. But here's the thing that debate is now moot. It is. Because the business plan, which was written in, there's not a date on the plan, but judging with the context of the plan itself, it's clear it was either written in February or early March 1972. Mm hmm. So this is a business plan being written right as this stuff is happening, as opposed to recollections 30 or 40 years later. Right. In the business plan, they give a little history of their endeavor, and it says in the business plan that they completed the prototype of Galaxy Game in November 1971, and they installed it in Stanford in late November 1971. Okay. So that's... They actually explicitly say when this came out. So that's the final word on that, because they're writing this business plan mere months later. Right. So the the sites that, that say September 1971 were absolutely correct based on the information available at the time, but there's new information now. It came out uh, in late November 1971. Okay. And it was a perfect recreation of Space War. It was not called Space War 
because of the climate at the time. Hugh Tuck wasn't exactly sure where the name Galaxy Game came from. He's pretty sure, though, that his sister suggested it. He had a sister at the time that was going to UC Berkeley. Mm -hmm. This is 1971. This is right at the tail end of the major period of the student protest movement on college campuses. Uh. Over the Vietnam War, over the military-industrial complex, all of this stuff. Full-on counterculture. And Berkeley was one of the centers of this counterculture movement. Yeah, there was a lot of it in California. And especially at Berkeley. I mean, yes, California everywhere, but especially Berkeley. Mm -hmm. Hugh Tuck's sister was right there seeing all of this going on, presumably, at UC Berkeley, which is why it would make sense that uh, Hugh's recollection is probably correct, even though he said he wasn't 100% certain of the recollection. She basically told them, you cannot make a game targeting college campuses with war in the title. War is very bad on college campuses right now. It's a naughty word. So that's why they had to change the name, because, of course, Space War wasn't copyrighted. Space War wasn't trademarked. Space War was just shared around by people. It was public domain for all intents and purposes. Yeah, it, it, it was just so new that no one thought of copywriting it or anything like that, like you would have today with even people who make indie games slap a bunch of copyright protection onto it the second they upload it to the net. <laughs> Right. So they could have presumably called it Space War if they'd wanted to. It's not like the name was taken. It's just that the reason that they're doing this is they're trying to tap into their target demographic, which is college campuses, and college campuses do not like war at the moment. Right. So they call it the Galaxy Game. Now, obviously, it's still very much a war game if you actually sit down and play it. But I think the point is that random hippies aren't going to notice Space War on the marquee and be like, that's war, man. That's not cool, man. Your game is terrible, man. You know, they, they don't want to get in that controversy. So that's why they name it the Galaxy Game instead of Space War. They wanted something that still kind of gave an indication of the cosmic nature of the game, but without mentioning war. Okay, and it's a game, and you're, you may be shooting each other back and forth, but it's a game, therefore it's fun and safe. So they put the game on location in late 1971. At the same time, they arranged for some press from the local paper announcing that, hey, there's this game this student union. Within three days, and this is according to the business plan, so this is, again, recollections very close into the, to the time of events. Within three days, they had lines forming. Mm -hmm. a at the peak of the craze, you know, you there were people waiting for like over an hour to play Galaxy Game. Nice. It took off right away. And you see, the interesting thing, the computer space, so paralleling with Nolan Bushnell and Ted Dabney's project, when they tested the game in August 71, presumably, or somewhere around then, they did their first test at a bar called the Dutch Goose. And the Dutch Goose was a favorite haunt of Stanford engineering students. Mm -hmm. And that test went very well. Computer space ended up only being a so-so performer when it was actually released. Some people call it an outright failure. It's more nuanced. We may do an episode on Computer Space sometime, I don't know, so I won't get into details on that right now. But the point is, Computer Space did not launch the video, the first video arcade game industry, Pong did, because Computer Space wasn't a great success. But that first test was, because mm -hmm. engineering students understood 
this whole Newtonian physics thing going on on the screen. You have college students who understand the mathematical and technological challenges that are going on and go, wow, they're actually representing how mechanics work. That's awesome. Right. So it's very clear from both Galaxy Game and Computer Space from its first test that there is definitely a sophisticated portion of the population that is loving the heck out of this stuff. So the Galaxy Game test is a great success. And so they go to phase two because that first prototype can only play one game. I mean, mm -hmm. they've got all of this stuff. They've got the timesharing figured out. They've got this and that figured out. But this original prototype is one monitor, two people. That's it. Because they really just wanted to make sure they had all the technical stuff done and they wanted to make sure that people would actually come and play. Right. So now that that's accomplished, phase two is to build that multi-cabinet time-shared system where you can run four, six, whatever games off of a single computer. Makes sense. And so this is another expensive process. This is where they spend the other 40000 like I was talking about, because it's those divisions may not be exact, but in their interviews and whatnot, they basically indicated that, you know, it took them 20000 to get to the first prototype, and it took them 60000 to get through the whole thing. So roughly 40000 So we'll call it that. This one had the computer actually in one of the cabinets. So they got rid of this idea of, you know, having the computer. Because again, that was just their, their test model. Right. So they created a system that would have four separate cabinets, one of which had the computer in it, the others of which were all slaves to that computer and time sharing it out. And these four cabinets, you could play individual games of Galaxy Game on each one, completely separate games of Galaxy Game, or you could slave a couple of them together to have a larger multiplayer version of it. You could do it either way. They went fiberglass this time, which is interesting because it's the same thing that Nolan Bushnell did with computer space. Mm -hmm. They both went fiberglass. I think fiberglass was seen as something kind of cool and futuristic looking at the time. And since these video games were new and futuristic. You want to have the display thing be enticing. I exactly. mean, you look at fiberglass, it's uh, polished, shiny, smooth, futuristic. Exactly. Because obviously that didn't last. I mean, by the time of Pong, you were just doing standard wooden cabinets. and. Atari did experiment again with fiberglass with their second game, Space Race, but fiberglass did not become a thing in the industry. It was all traditional wooden cabinets. But these first two games, mm -hmm. Computer Space and Galaxy Game, were both fiberglass, which is kind of interesting. So they created this four-monitor setup, and then they put it in the same student union, but in a different section, a more highly trafficked section. Though the portion they put on display was actually only two cabinets. It was made to handle four cabinets, but the space that they had in the union would only allow for two cabinets to actually be in there. Okay. Again, it was very successful. They put that in sometime in early 1972. The business plan was written before that version was completed. At the time, they were targeting late March to put it on location. And I think in subsequent interviews, they've said that it went on location in March. So I think about March 1972 is when that second one was introduced. It ran all the way until 1979. Long time. And it could have run longer. That's when the display interface kind of failed on them. They couldn't just replace it or fix it? Well, probably could. But at that point, it's so old and they're not doing anything else with it anyway. So yeah. why bother? That, that's when you just end the, the grand experiment. Okay. But I guess they just didn't get enough. Well, it sounds like they were successful at the time, especially with the first test and the second test. 
why didn't they actually become a company and able to make mass production public? The economics just didn't work is the simplest way to put it. They created a company, Mini Computer Applications, and they had a plan, like I said, there were two parts to their plan. First, they wanted to put it in student unions. Mm -hmm. They were going to do it slowly. They were going to start with the Bay Area. Then they were going to kind of do the rest of California. Then they were going to go nationwide. They were also going to turn it into a multi-game system. They were talking about creating like a baseball game and creating like maybe a chess game or something or was a checkers game. I can't remember. You know, they were talking about doing other games as part of the system so it would be a multi-game unit. Yeah, it would make sense. You got a computer there. You just need to have a little bit of storage to load different programs. And I sit down, put my quarter in, select which game I want, and play it. You see that now with some of the uh, small arcade multi-game units in bars and arcades now. Oh, you yeah. can sit down and just put in a couple quarters, and it has the hundred, literally hundreds of games. Select the one you want and play a classic game. Exactly. They wanted to do the system where they're not selling it to the universities, but, you know, they're kind of exchanging the coin drop and they take the lion's share of the coin drop and the university takes the smaller share. So the university gets a little money that they wouldn't get otherwise. And then many computer applications gets to recoup the cost of making this very expensive machine. They just couldn't get any investment for that. Mm -hmm. And they did... I don't know if it was before or after this point. I think it was before, though. They did try also to interest Chicago Coin mm -hmm. in doing it as a traditional arcade game. Not interested. The economics just did not work. You're looking at something that costs ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars. Like I said, I don't know exactly what the final cost of a cabinet would be because it took them, you know, X amount of money to create the prototypes. But then some of that is because you don't know what you're doing and you have false starts. And then once you're mass producing, you have economies of scale. So you get discounts on components. And you're talking about systems that cost tens of thousands of dollars or whatever. No university is going to buy that. They have enough trouble just buying the computers, let alone an entertainment device. Yeah. Well, not that the universities are buying it, obviously, like I said, but they're splitting the coin drop. But no, no university is going to want to do that. No investor is going to see a way to make money on that. Investors need a promise that they're going to make money. Bill Pitts, between 72 and 79, actually broke even. Just His, off of the two prototypes. Yeah, because he had the one in Stanford through 79, and he had the other one, which he occasionally put on location elsewhere. He kind of moved it around from place to place. It never did as well. Between those two prototypes, he made back his money. But it took him, you know, like, what, seven years to make back his money. That's not a good turnaround time, especially when you're talking about games and arcades and stuff. And usually the lifespan of any single game is six months to a year. Right. And this one had some staying power because it remained popular at Stanford for years. But there's no profit there. And if you're going to get outside investment, you need an indication that there's going to be profit there. And they just couldn't put together a business plan that made sense. And obviously, the arcade industry developed in a very different direction. And there was eventually a space war game in the arcade in late 1977, Cinematronics, which was one of the pioneers in vector-based arcade hardware, released Space Wars, which was essentially space war in the arcade. And this was created by a fellow named Larry Rosenthal, who was an absolute electrical engineering and programming genius, who found a way to do a very cheap vector hardware system. He was an independent guy, and then he gave the concept to Cinematronics. He sold it to them. 
But it uh, took till 1978 to get there, and it was a hit. It right. sold like 10,000 cabinets, which pre-Space Invaders was huge. Right. It was the number one game in 1978, but it took a very different kind of approach. It was TTL hardware. It wasn't a full computer in there. You needed more time for the technology to mature to that point. In the short term, the only way you were going to get video games to start was with something very simple and cheap, and that was Pong. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting story because they were there right at the beginning. They were one of the very first two commercial video game products. And that makes the story a very interesting story and one worth covering. But at the end of the day, the influence was slight. Though there were some important people in the industry that saw it. Ed Logg was a Stanford student, and he played both Space War on computers and Galaxy Game at Stanford. and. At Atari, he adapted some of those basic space war mechanics into a little game he was creating called Asteroids, Mm. which sold 70,000 cabinets. It was Atari's most successful game. So there was a small amount of influence from Galaxy Game on subsequent products, but it was basically just an evolutionary dead end. So while it's a very interesting story, at the end of the day, they did not have a lot of impact, but they still deserve all the credit in the world for being one of the first uh, sets of people to come up with a radical new idea, which is, let's take a computer game, let's put a coin slot on it, and let's sell it to the public. And be lo and behold, video games. And thus, the Empire was born. <laughs> well, that pretty much covers that. Anything else? I think that does it. Alrighty. And where are we going next time? Well, you know, since we did so many very serious episodes on the crash very recently i thought it might be fun or we thought it might be fun to do something a little lighthearted and what, happy wasn't lighthearted oh sure but you know something <laughs> lighthearted and bouncy and involving falling blocks and you know kgb agents and all of that great stuff intrigue and and construction and shapes exactly so uh we're gonna cover the story of tetris i can't say that I have any, like, brand new revelations, like in the case of Galaxy Game. The story we're going to tell is going to be, I think, pretty much the standard Tetris story, but it's a story that tends to be told in bits and pieces here and bits and pieces there, rather than kind of all compiled together in one place. So we're just going to kind of have some fun and explore how a little falling block game could become one of, like, the the biggest things ever in the history of the world. Well, and at least from the layman's point, I don't know the story, so... Yay! All right, then. (laughs) All right. And we will see you next time on They Create World. Check out our show notes at tcwpodcast.podbean.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com Email us at tcwpodcast at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at TCW Podcast. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com forward slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Thank you.